I'm Elizabeth, Johnny's wife. <laughs> Thank you so much for the privilege of, of getting an opportunity to invest um, in, in this ministry and in the hearts and lives of every one of you that are listening. I don't take that lightly. Um, what I feel like God has given me to share with you this morning is, uh, I would say, if I was going to give it a title, is, is he's inviting us to reorient ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I often feel like I have just been plopped down into the middle of chaos and a war zone and, uh, you know, on a good day, just just trying to figure out, okay, what do I want to pour myself into today? Anywhere from that to a worse day where I'm like, just stay as low as possible to not get hit by the flying bullets in the spirit realm. And I often have to reorient or recenter myself in the Holy Spirit. We've been to Israel a few times, and I love how the Hebraic culture and being in Jerusalem reminds us that they always oriented themselves in biblical days, uh, in the days of Jesus, they would orient themselves according to where the temple is. And, uh, you know, that, of course, was the presence of God to them. And I feel like God's given me five specific anchors or non-negotiables that we need to uh, take inventory again of. You know, we cannot give away what we don't have. And if we're here to bring change to the world and to display the truth about who God is, then it's really important that what we are displaying, what we're giving away, is, is an accurate representation of our Father's heart. And I've, um, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was spirit-filled when I was eight years old at a, uh, after a Kenneth Copeland meeting. Um, I can't remember a day of ever not walking with the Lord and, and knowing Him as my Father. And... Uh, Yet, I find myself often in a place of needing to re-anchor myself to the essentials. And if the point is to display to the world the goodness of our God, then how much more do we have to anchor ourselves to it? They're wanting to know if God exists and he's good, then why fill in the blank? And we cannot honestly answer that question until we have answered it for ourselves. And I don't believe it's just a one-time answer. I believe it, it's sometimes a moment-by-moment, breath-by-breath answer. But it's a place that we must anchor ourselves to. So 
Anchor number one. Excuse me. I hate having to take glasses on and off. Giving away my age here. We must remain unwavering in his goodness. Every time you draw on the correct, true nature of God, that he's good and only good, you are advancing the kingdom. For 10 plus years now, Johnny and I have been so honored that God would allow us to steward over our piece of uh, the Seven Mountain message and um, I'm just so happy that the Walnows are here. I guess Lance is coming. We've got the, the better half here, Annabelle. We're glad you're here. And we had no idea when the Lord gave Johnny a download about the Seven Mountains that God had already given Lance uh, and Annabelle a download about the Seven Mountains, about... Uh, I'm not going to go into that. I'm just going to assume you were here last night, the seven areas of culture, and um, how God isn't just the God of salvation, but he's also the God of every area of life. And uh, we didn't know that, that another couple was already running with that and was just, um, it was so reassuring you know, when you hear something from the Lord that feels really big, and whether it's for yourself or someone else, to get confirmation that someone else is hearing the same thing. And then we found out through one of Lance's messages that, um, that Bill, Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham had both originally gotten this download from the Lord about the Seven Mountains independently of each other and went to a meeting, sat down with each other, and both showed each other their matching notes. So um, during the last 10 years, especially the first year, as I was hearing Johnny process through this new revelation that he had received from the Lord, and he's talking about the goodness and the kindness of God and how he's so good and so amazing and so powerful that he had a plan to bring restoration not only to our hearts and our souls, but to every area of broken culture. And boy, is it broken. And something in me just, you know, highly resonated with that. Yes, yes, let's give our lives to this message. Let's stop here and just dig deep into this place. Let's make ourselves experts on on these seven aspects of who God is and who he longs to be for us in, in, in our nations. But I realized soon, sitting on the front row, message after message, because we, we were pastoring a church at the time, and Johnny always practiced preaching to our local church what he was going to write about and then travel and speak about. And... I would sit on the front row time and time again and just process this. First of all, I'm like, is he right, God? Is he right? Am I married to a false prophet? (laughs) Y'all get nervous, like, is he right about this or not? Like, I'm married to the dude, right? (laughs) This is like a lot on the line here. Anyway. He's not a false prophet. He doesn't even call himself a prophet, but he's not a false prophet. I tell you that. He is the real deal. Um, 
But I would process and say, like, really? I've, I was taught that song, 10 and 9, 8 and 7, 6 and... F-. No, how does it go? Uh, I'm thinking of a different song. The one where you're waiting on the rapture. Uh, anyway, I've lost the song. That was... There's, there's a song that I grew up singing in my private Christian school, and I watched the movie, uh, you know, about Jesus returning, and they're driving down the road, and the car wrecks because the person is taken up in the rapture, and I, there was a dog in the car, and the dog's left in the car, you know? It was, I was literally traumatized. Seriously. It was such a demonic... False theology. Jesus is returning. I do believe that. Anyway, are you that good, God? And I started having to reconcile that within myself and become more and more honest with myself. My mom had fought cancer for five years and then died when I was 12 years old. And my, um, my parents had fought so hard. This was back in the 70s, early 70s. And they, um, they followed uh, the faith movement. And they also did all the natural stuff that was so rare back then. It's like popular now to take vitamins. But I remember my mom had to get, uh, it was illegal, but she had to get B12 shots. Can you imagine like how things have changed. But, but they fought. And they, if it was up to their faith, then she would have lived. She would have been healed. And so I had taken all of that confusion that I was left with and all of that fear and, and all of the pain and grief, and I had stuffed it so deep. And... Um, it all began to come out during that first year of, of Johnny getting this amazing big picture revelation. And the same God that was giving him this amazing download had his finger on this very intimate place in my heart. And, you know, I went through some different inner healing classes in Sozo. Sozo is like a prayer ministry where uh, you go after traumatic events that you've gone through in your childhood and you look for, uh, with the help of the person praying for you and the Holy Spirit, you look for places in your heart and throughout your childhood where you believed lies about God and lies about yourself based on the circumstances that you went through that didn't properly represent the Father's heart to you. And so as I'm sitting hearing Johnny preach this message after message, and the Lord has his finger on this intimate place in my heart, he began healing me. And it started with me being, uh, giving myself permission to be honest. And I got to that, that deep, raw place of honesty with God. If you've never gotten there, it can feel like if I let myself really go there, it's going to swallow me up and suck me in. And that's how I felt about my grief and my pain. But I realized that what you don't expose to him, he cannot touch. And as I began to expose those places of disappointment in my heart, I realized a very inconvenient truth because I was co-pastor of our church. I realized that there was a place in my heart that hated God. 
because I knew and I had been taught by the Holy Spirit I'd had since I was eight years old and by my parents that God can and would heal my mom. But yet he was the only person who could, yet he didn't. He did not make sure that this little girl grew up with a healthy mom for the rest of her life. We all have our sad stories. We all have those traumatic things that we went through, those profound disappointments. And I want to challenge you, if you've never gone to that raw, honest place that David himself demonstrates for us in the Psalms, it's so important to go there. Because we cannot give away what we don't have. And to the degree that our hearts haven't worked that out and gotten onto the other side of it, where our stakes are in the ground, he is good and only good, even if every single circumstance I ever go through tempts me to believe the opposite. I must know that I know that I know that he is good. You know, when they ate of the, gar- they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, Adam and Eve did what any one of us would do, and it was no shock to God. I see it if, I'm not going to go into this, so if it doesn't click easily, then just forget I said it, but I don't want to confuse anybody. But I see this connection between the story of the prodigal son and what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. In the prodigal story, the father... literally financed the rebellion of the son. He gave to him what he wanted, had planned to give him all along. Your inheritance, for him it was money, but basically our inheritance, what, what, what God has offered each one of us is our independence, our free will. And the father in the prodigal story gave the son that independence knowing that he was not ready for it yet. Yet he was willing to take the risk because he knew the power of his love. I believe that in the garden, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they changed something in our brains for the rest of humanity. When they ate of that tree, they began to have the capacity to to look at something or someone in a way they never had before. They could look at something or someone and think, is it good or is it evil? And more importantly, they could look at God and have the capacity to doubt and question, is he good or is he evil? And ever since that switch in their brain, and we all genetically come from them, we all now have the capacity to look at something or someone and wonder, is it good or is it evil, and try to discern it. We all have the capacity to doubt God. It is literally wired into these fallen earthly bodies, a tendency, a propensity to view God through our circumstances. 
it's really important for us to know that about ourselves because those who are sons and daughters of God who don't yet know that they are, who are lost in the world, they're wired just like us. For example, when you get that really good parking spot in front of Starbucks, don't you feel just a little more seen and loved by God? You know, and we know him. And I'm sorry, but I do not believe in true atheists. Who do they get the most angry with when things go horribly wrong? And when you're angry, sometimes the, the, the only thing you can do to express the fullness of your anger is to give your complete rejection to something or someone. I believe that that, that is... how we're all wired. We go through circumstances in life, and if we're not intentionally not doing it, we water God down to any given moment or circumstance that we go through. That's why it's so hard. Habakkuk 2.14. I guess what I was trying to say with the whole, I'm sitting on the front row sorting through everything while Johnny's getting this big picture revelation. I'm wanting to help connect for you the journey that each one of you have personally been on with this big picture narrative of let's change the world. And what There is a simplicity to partnering with God that can be stolen from us if we don't recognize how simple it actually is. So as I'm sitting, processing all of this with God month after month, and Johnny's getting this revelation and writing his first book about it, God spoke to me so clearly, and he said, in the same way that I am healing your heart, I am healing the collective hearts of cities and nations. Now, we're made in God's image, and we know that God has an ability to deal with us very intimately and very uh, much on a personal, individual level. But this same God also has the ability to deal with entire nations and cities and regions and feel so uh, intimate about that people group that he can weep over them. He calls Israel his firstborn among many nations. He was using Israel as an example, and we honor Israel as the first, but as an example of all of the nations that burn in him like your individual heart and story burns in him. So, we each water God down to this doubting process because of our circumstances. It happens collectively on a societal level as well. Every area of culture, the way it currently is, is so broken that when we experience it, we're experiencing circumstances that collectively convince our hearts that if God exists, 
He's not really very good, and he doesn't really care about us, and we are left to ourselves to figure it out. Therefore, we have set into motion in every area of culture systems. Some of them look plain evil. Some of them look just dysfunctional. Some some of them are just a mess. You know, not everything is just pure evil. These areas of culture were meant to be the way that we experience the different faces and aspects and heart of our God. We were meant to grow up in a family, that area of culture, to grow up in a, in a family in a way that calibrates our hearts to the reality that we have a father and we have a spiritual family that we are unconditionally loved by and accepted And we were meant to grow up with the strength of that healthy expression of family. We were meant to grow up in economic systems that are not rooted and grounded in greed and mammon where you have to work hard to, you know, everything's dependent on you. And you got to use people and leverage everything to get anywhere financially. We were meant to enjoy the provision of our Father and partner with his ability to bring increase to anything and everything that he gets involved with, etc. Those are just two examples. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth, how will this all wrap up? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. I remember reading um, the story in Exodus 33 of Moses when God shows him his glory. And I want to just visit that for just a minute here. Moses had been meeting face to face with God. And I believe God had been growing humanity up slowly, generation after generation, to just, Johnny says it the best way, I I just love it when he says this, but uh, I'll do my best, honey, Um, that God relates to humanity as a father, obviously, and you can see that played out even in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's as if humanity were a toddler, and he, he, he never changed throughout all of Scripture, but his conversations with us did. And in the Old Testament, you know, if you, you're a, a perfect parent, which none of us were, um, are, whatever, you, you deal with your two-year-old not in the same way that you deal with your teenagers or your grown children. There are a lot of no's. You're just trying to keep them alive for the deeper conversations. <laughs> and you see that in the Old Testament. But I imagine the heart and the patience. Oh, just let that soak in how long he's waited for you and for our generation. We see how far we have to go, but he sees how far we've come. You know, every bit of us has a little, every one of us has a little bit of the prodigal 
in us. And we are slowly coming back home to him. But this father waits at the end of the road with compassion. And you see his compassion in the Old Testament, but but he's got his own heart and his own need that he allowed himself to have, a need. The one thing, the only thing God has ever, ever wanted was intimacy with us. And you cannot have true intimacy when only one of the two knows the other. That's perversion. In his patience for the purpose of his end goal and desire he's had all along, intimacy with us, he has allowed us to grow up in the knowledge of who he is until one day it will all end with every single person having had access to the fullness of who he is. Not just that he is Savior, But he's provider and he's father and he's teacher. And all the rest that he is. I think there are many more than seven faces of his, but seven is all we could handle on this side of eternity. But think about it. The rainbow, like our eyes can only see in this realm seven distinct colors. But evidently the rainbow is actually an endless array of colors. Just saying, that's our God. Okay, back to Moses. God was excited because he had been allowing Moses to have these conversations with him. And he had an entire generation around Moses that was so frightened of God. They just, they just couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle him. And God in his compassion waits and he waits and he waits until he sends Jesus, right? But meanwhile, he's there with Moses and Moses is rare. Moses is seeing him face-to-face so much that his face would literally glow, which was part of the reason why the rest of everybody was so scared. But Moses, even though he'd been seeing God and having face-to-face conversations with him, he asked the question that God had been waiting for generation after generation since Adam and Eve. And he said, will you show me your glory. I would have thought I'd already seen it at that point. But evidently he had seen enough to know that there was so much more. And he wanted to know, I think that when we talk about someone's glory, whether it's our glory or God's glory, because we're all born with a glory of our own because we're made in his image. I believe that that when we talk about someone's glory, we're talking about the essence of who they are. When you look up that word, um, it means, I can't remember the exact meaning, but it basically means like a weightiness or an impression. If I were to put a big comfy couch up here and I sit down on it and then I get back up and I can see the indentation that I made there. That's the impression that my weight made on this piece of furniture. And so your, your, your weightiness, it's also connected to our name. His glory is always connected to his name. Our identity is connected to our glory. God's identity, the truth about who he is, is connected to his glory. And so 
I think of our glory as what comes to mind when someone hears our name, our reputation, what someone thinks of when they think of you, the feeling that they have when they interact with you. This is our glory. This is his glory. And Moses wanted to know what is behind all of this. What is the core and essence of who you are? And God wants to be known because he wants intimacy. He wants us to know him like he knows us. He knows every hair on our head or lack of it. He knows He knows us, and he wants us to know him that intimately. That's where this is all headed. That battle, that war zone that you were plopped down into the middle of, that war zone that you are constantly having to reorient yourself in the midst of, that war zone has always and only been about one thing. It's not about a big God and a not-as-big Satan. He's just a pawn. What it's always been about is the thing that God has wanted the most, intimacy with every single one of his sons and daughters for all of eternity. And this short earthly experience, I think of it as like a womb. You know, a baby's in the womb for nine months to prepare it to be birthed into its life. We're here for a short time in this womb of this earthly experience for a short time to be prepared to be birthed into eternity. This is all for that. Do you feel the Father reorienting you right now? This is just a baptism of his love. It all starts and ends in love, in intimacy, in a love affair, in this, this triangle between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They just wanted to add us right into the middle of that. And that's where this is headed. So Moses, he asked to see God's glory. And God was so excited. You can hear him kind of externally processing in that Exodus 33. My paraphrase. Ah, Okay, let's rig this. Because if you really see what you want to see, it will physically kill you. And it's not your time to go. So I'm going to rig this. What can I do? Okay, I'm going to hide you in this rock right here. And then I'm only going to show you the backside of my glory. Because if you see all of it, it will kill you. But he wanted to show him so bad that he rigged it so that it wouldn't kill him. So he asked to see his glory, and then what does it say? He caused all of his goodness to pass before him. Want to know what's at the core of this God? Just good. Nothing disappointing. Just good. He's just good. Anchor number one. Remain unwavering in his goodness. Every time you draw on the correct, true nature of God in the midst of contradicting circumstances, you are advancing the kingdom. You are advancing the kingdom. I just want to break that down a little bit. So whatever it is that you're facing right now, the biggest obstacle that's in your path on your journey, 
as you face it, let's say it's a sickness, when you contend and you believe that he can heal you and wants to heal you, you are drawing on the true nature and character of the goodness of God. This is going to sound a little trite. I don't mean it that way. But whether you ever receive it or not is almost irrelevant because it's true nonetheless. This is a God who can and does heal. Now, contend for it, believing that he wants to do that. I'm just saying the bigger picture, what, the way the kingdom works in my mind is that the greater always includes the lesser. So the greater thing is to believe that, it, that he is our healer, this side of eternity. The lesser thing is to actually get the healing. I want them both. Every time you look at your past that tried to convince you that you are not worth anything, that you have no value, when you look at it and you say, actually, I am so adored and loved, You are drawing on the true character and nature of our God. When you experience something that doesn't look like the goodness of God, but you choose to believe that it's just not good yet, you are literally bringing heaven to earth. Kingdom coming to earth, again, it's not just some woo-woo spiritual concept. Kingdom is the king's way of doing things. It's, It's... It's the truth of who he is and what he's like. It's the how of him. And so when we believe in the face of contradiction that, and we hold the line in our generation of who he is, not just that he exists, but who he is and what he's like, you are partnering with God for the biggest thing that's on his heart. And I'm saying that because I, I want you to feel I feel that he wants you to feel how successful your life already is. You are already successful. The fact that you are choosing to believe who he is, despite all that you have been through. He is so, so happy to partner with you. And you're doing a good job. And it really is that simple. When we show up into our areas of culture that we are passionate about and that we carry influence in and we are convinced that that he is good, then you don't show up and look at a problem and judge it. You don't show up and look at a problem and pick out everything about it that's wrong or that's not like God. You look for the one thing that you can breathe on and you say, live. And you get excited about it because you're so in love with God that you can't wait to find the next thing that even hints towards him. And you look at problems and you know a God who doesn't just save someone's soul for eternity. You know a God who cares about every single little thing that they care about. And so you care too. And you care enough to take this intimacy that you have, you have 
walked in day after day and struggled and fought for in your own relationship with God, and you take that intimacy and you use it to access God's solution for that problem. The second thing I'll do, a more brief version on the rest of these points. We're going to anchor ourselves to this. Live intentionally. The temptation any given day is to simply survive. But we were created, despite everything in your body and your mind and your emotions that would try to tempt you to believe the the opposite. You were created not to survive, but to thrive. And we can thrive in the midst of the brokenness around us, sometimes in us. We can thrive because... None of this defines me. If it doesn't define my God and I'm made in his image, then it doesn't define me either. This is a quick statement. You might want to write it down. And this is how I live intentionally every day for many years now. It's a statement that I just constantly reorient myself with. Here it is. I live. Why am I here? I live to know the real him, to make the real him known. To learn how to be loved and how to love. Four things. I live to know the real him. Not the him that my circumstances would tempt me to believe. I live to know the real him. To make the real him known. To learn how to be loved. And to love. This thing of learning how to be loved... I. I wish we could all have a a snapshot of that moment in time in our own personal lives when we just couldn't stand to be the center of attention or the object of affection anymore. We were born, like think about it, a newborn locks eyes with anyone. Up until a certain age, there's there's no self, you know, I don't know what the word is, where you just can't handle that. The Lord showed me years ago, he said, if you want to be sustained more than you're feeling right now, you have to learn how to be the object of my affection. And you've got to get physically still enough every day as often as possible and just don't squirm. (laughs) Don't pray in tongues. Don't think about other things. Just, would you just, would you just let, My love, my affection, my eyes be on you. Would you just get still long enough to recognize that I'm always, my gaze is always, always, always on you. And when you catch me looking at you, my love hits its mark in your heart. And everything else just falls away. Because nothing compares to that. I believe the Lord is, is taking us as a generation through a process that I won't go into the details of now, but I believe it with all of my heart, where he is transitioning us to a place where we love everyone radically and extravagantly without fear of looking like we're condoning sin. And... 
without agenda. This is the love of God. God is not trying to get everyone to become Christians. God is not trying to get everyone to behave. God is not looking for excuses to be angry with his sons and daughters. We are going to get that so deeply and profoundly. And our children and their children's children will get that so deeply and profoundly that they don't have time for anything but that love. Because that love is who he is. And his love is irresistible. When it is fully seen and fully poured out, it is irresistible. Now, I say that. God gave us all free will, and there are those that that I can't fathom it. But they reject this love of his. But I'm going to love as if it could not be true. I'm going to love as if there's a Holy Spirit who knows how to convict everyone of sin. And I get to stand in the position of the, of the father. We, we, speaking of that story of the prodigal son, the other brother, that wasn't a real story. That was a parable. And Jesus told that story to give us the advantage of learning something from the story. And there are many truths in there. But one of, one of the things I believe that he wanted us to see is we aren't the father in the prodigal story. As parents, some of us can really relate, unfortunately, to uh, the, the father in that story. But, but for the collective sense, we are the other brother. We're the older brother. And he wants us to know what the older brother in that story didn't know, which is the father's heart. The father waited with hopeful anticipation at the end of the road because he knew the magnetic power of his love. And he couldn't wait to celebrate the return of his son. We are the other brother, and we have the opportunity to wait at the end of the road with the father on all those who are lost. As I said, love is never neutral. The love that the father waits with, he's not a victim. He's not like, oh, I got all this love to give out and, you know. No, his love doesn't stop. It's just constantly flowing like water. Water doesn't stop unless it's restricted. It goes through every possible crack and crevice to the lowest places. That, that river of his love that flows from out from under his throne his, his love is constantly seeking out those who are lost. Anyway, extravagant, radical love. Number three, anchor ourselves to this non-negotiable. Treat yourself and others like they matter. Treat yourself and others like they matter. When I was having my uh, raw, honest moments with God, where I was finally, for a short time, saying, God, I think I actually hate you. He showed me, he, 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 he took me through a process that took me back 
all the way to my most rooted core need and question. And it took me a while to get there, but I think every one of you can probably relate to this. And the question for me wasn't, why didn't you heal my mom? Why did I have to grow up this way or whatever? My question was, do I matter? Do I even matter? Because if you created me and you're the one who's the most powerful and can override and do anything, then in my mind, if I mattered, this would have gone differently. He took me to Matthew 25, and I'm not going to read it, but it's the parable. Um, it's not a parable. It's actually sandwiched in with some other parables, but it's the, the way that Jesus chose to describe the end of time. And it's the scripture where he says, I'm going to be seated on the throne, and I'm going to divide the sheep nations and the goat nations. And he said, there will be some who... Um, will have recognized me and some who will not. And he explains it like this. He says, some will say, uh, when were you sick and in prison and thirsty and needed clothing? And Jesus called them the least of these. You remember that part in the Bible? Just not going to take the time to go into it. But I just began to just really delve into that. And I... I realized that, number one, Jesus equates himself with the least of these. That scripture makes it so clear that Jesus equates himself with the least of these. So who does he consider to be the least of these? I believe the thing that all of those that he described in that list have one thing in common. They're all so broken that they are fully in touch with that core ache, that core question of, do I really even matter? If you think about it, someone, he didn't say, you know, I'll divide you from sheep and goat nations based on whether you go to prison and you lead someone to me, or if you go to the sick and you heal someone, or if you go to the thirsty and you show them how to have a business so they can build a well, like, he was very specific. It Literally, he just says, very, I, you visited them, or you gave them a drink, or you clothed them. Now, we've probably all been walking with God long enough to know that he was not giving us a list of requirements to get in heaven. This is not works-based. He was not giving us a list of the works we need to do in order to get in heaven. He was connecting us with something greater. And I believe what he was connecting us with is this understanding that it is that simple. When we resolve that question for ourselves, and only God himself, only the creator himself can reassure that place in your heart. But he does it through other people. Because the same way that we are wired to doubt him because of our circumstances, it's that easy to bring a different circumstance to someone's life that speaks truth to their heart, that translates to their heart that they matter. If I go in to visit someone who is in prison 
And they're, they're there year after year after year feeling like, what's the point of me? Why do I even matter? Whatever, whatever they went through to end up in that broken place. We were in Alcatraz visiting uh, that tour where you go to Alcatraz by San Diego and San Francisco. And I walked into the cell and I just felt like all of a sudden this, this clarity of, of how, how much in despair someone would be even in that particular island uh, jail because you're away from the city life. No one can come and visit you. Do I even matter? I believe that, that there are I'll just say I watched my own mom go through this, and I have her journals from when she was um, sick. And her question eventually came to be, not will you heal me, but really, in her own words, do I even matter to you? Don't let me be ashamed. If someone doesn't have water, if you don't have water or clothing, like the most basic things that a human being needs, eventually what you need more than you even need those things is proof Do I even matter as a human being? When we understand that Jesus equates himself with the most core question that we all wrestle with, he has an answer for it, and we become their proof. So when we partner with God to bring heaven to earth, whatever it is that you're doing right now, if you're, you know, a cashier at a store, or if you're a janitor, or if you are a CEO of a corporation and you are managing hundreds of people, or anything in between, if you're an intercessor in your closet at home, whatever it is that you do, when you connect it to, you root it in the goodness of God, and then you connect it to How can I use what I do to answer that core question in another person's heart? When they come and sit in my office, is everything about their experience with me telling them how much they matter? Am I doing what I do with such excellence and with such non-agenda but just pure love? How can I serve you? How can I improve your situation or your life? How can I... Make choices that convince your heart how much you matter. That's the simplicity of the kingdom coming to earth. Jesus described it himself in in that passage, Matthew 25. When we learn to care about what he cares about, which is he cares about answering that question for each soul. Yes, you matter. So again, number three, treat yourself and others like they matter. Number four, daily surrender your rights and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. I hate this part. I do, I do. He's so worth it. We have an 18-year-old right now, our last. And she is chomping at the bit for the independence that we long to give her. (laughs) Didn't mean that to sound that way. 
but we do. We long to give it to her. That's why you have kids is you want to launch them out and see them succeed and run with God. And uh, she's not ready. (laughs) And I wasn't ready. I don't think you were ready. None of us were ready for the independence that God longed to give us. But you know that you found the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Wisdom, Holy Spirit is wisdom personified. You know you've really stepped into a, a stride in your relationship with Holy Spirit when out of wisdom you surrender the independence that he gave you back over to him. And you realize, not only can I not do this by myself, I don't want to do this by myself. Would you please make the decisions for me? There's a dailiness to the surrender, and there's a dailiness to the cross. The cross, you know, we sing about it, and we value it, and we wear jewelry with it, and it's precious to us. But when you, like, really think about it, and you, um, you process, like, it is, it's not just a spiritual concept. It, it's a literal thing like an electric chair <laughs> that was invented in a human being's mind. Somebody at one point in history had this thought, let's, let's take people and nail them onto this, these two wooden beams. It's called a cross, and let's punish them this way. I can guarantee you that idea didn't come from God. The humility of this God to allow us as humanity to choose how we would allow our Savior to do what he did for us. Fortunately, Jesus did not say, it's in uh, Luke 9.23, he did not say, Take up my cross and follow me. His cross, his cross was his cross. And only he could do on it what needed to be done. But unfortunately, he did say, every single one of us has a cross. And that daily, if we want to follow him, we are to pick it up and carry it. I've been spending a very long time just pressing into him on that and what that means. And I'll just tell you at this point what it means to me. To me, the cross represents the pain and the disappointment and the the difficulty of being birthed into this intimacy with him for all of eternity. And this is a God who not only has compassion, but he's been there and he literally carried his cross too. He didn't just die on it. And even he needed someone to help him carry it. And so you do have a cross and it is daily, but you don't carry it alone. And it's an honor and a privilege because it means we're following him. So 
how we each deal, I'll say it this way, our relationship with pain and our perspective of pain and our response to pain is central in our lives. And it's seen in the dailiness of the cross that we each have to carry. Jesus had a relationship with the cross, and it was central to his life and his mission. How much more so for us? He said if we want to follow him, we would each have to pick up our cross, not his. And that's the difference, because the enemy would have you believe that the pain that you choose to embrace every day rather than just survive or numb yourself from, the pain that you embrace head on, and you say, let's do this today, God. That pain is not unto death. That pain is unto life. His was unto death so that ours could be unto life. So I think a question and a conversation that every one of us should be having with God is, what does it look like today for me to embrace the cross? And Holy Spirit, how do you want to help me with it today? Because I'm not on my own. I cannot and I refuse to try to do it on my own and act like an orphan. If the creator of the universe could die on a cross and allow another human being to help him carry his cross then I'm going to remember to ask for help all day long. And we're going to do this together. Never, ever, ever alone. Never, ever, ever an orphan. Again, as we do that, we are displaying the true character of our God. Number five. I've already pretty much spoken into this, but it's default to love never fails. Let your default, when you don't know what to do, when you don't know what to say, when you don't know how to get from here across this cavern to the other side, when the mountain is way too high for you to get up, default to love never fails. His love for you is enough to empower you to fuel the world's craving for love. Do you feel that, that, I'm going to close with this. Just waiting on him. Let his love just keep washing over you right now. I had a dream I'm not going to go into all the details, but it was very significant for me, and so I'm just going to give you some little pieces of it. In the dream, I was in... I have some notes on it that will help me not have to rely on my memory. In the dream, I was in what felt like a green room to me, and I looked up what a green room is. It's where performers can relax when they're not performing. It's a waiting room. I think of it like a waiting room when something's about to get birthed, whether it's a, you know, a concert, 
or a conference like we're doing right now, people will wait in a green room. It's a waiting. It's a place where the performing stops and the rest settles on, on someone. So I'm in this green room in the dream, and I'm, it, it has like a, you know, a wraparound sofa, and there are people sitting in the sofa, and some people standing all around, and I'm sitting on the sofa where I can see the entrance, the doorway, and I'm in the dream, I'm sitting next to someone, skip over some details, and the people that were significant in the room to me were uh, this one person who walks in the door, and she represented to me uh, an innocent victim, a person who has such purity that was stolen, and uh, it's a person that I actually know, and she just She's just an innocent victim, just such a purity about her. And my heart just leapt, like I just wanted to run to the door and go greet her and hug her and catch up with her. But I didn't. I waited. And then I was aware there was a person sitting next to me, and it was, I was touching their feet. So I was very familiar with this person. I would say it was maybe like a family member, somebody that I personally felt super comfortable with. And then my husband was sitting over here next to me, and in the dream he felt like and represented to me the prophetic and, and what's right, um, what, what I would think of as truth. Uh, and then there was a TV on in the room, and the TV kept transitioning back and forth between the news and a very religious church service. <laughs> And it just was flipping back and forth. It was on this really old TV. And then the next thing I knew, I had chosen out of all the people in the room to kind of relate to or visit with or connect with, I had chosen a woman in the room. And I'm not going to say the name of the woman, but she represented uh, some of what Johnny was speaking into last night of, of uh, the spirit of Jezebel over our nation. And she was standing there, and, and because of the level of leadership that she's in, she's the least likeliest person that I would feel drawn to or comfortable approaching in that kind of situation. And yet in the dream, I, I, that's who I chose, and I went and I stood next to her. And as I did, the only way I know how to explain it right now is, is, is the ministry of reconciliation. I felt like I knew how to communicate her heart to God in a way that she was never able to communicate. I felt like I knew her heart And her face would flip back and forth between who I knew, I don't know what Jezebel really looks like, but in the dream, you know how dreams go. It was the face of Jezebel and this other person in government leadership and flipping back and forth. And I I told someone, turn the TV off. And every the room is just a buzz, and I just began to speak her heart to God. And I said, I'm so sorry. 
I'm so confused. I'm so lost. I've partnered with the evil and I'm in so deep and I don't understand. And I need help. I need help. I've made a mess. I've made a mess. And it just went on and, and this cry in me just built up and I was yelling and crying. And, 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 and she was she was everything I was saying and she fell to the ground because her heart, her true heart had finally been expressed to God and she felt reconciled to him. And I fell down next to her and I'm still crying out and wailing and wailing and it was just this position. I'm not an intercessor, y'all. I don't, I'm not, I love y'all intercessors. I am not one. So I don't even describe it as intercession. It was reconciliation. It was, it was putting words in her mouth, kind of. And I fell down next to her and I'm weeping and everyone in the room began to fall down and weep with the same heart, with their own heart. I've made a mess. I need help. Come, Lord. And the walls in the room just fell. And an endless sea of people. I don't dream, y'all. I do not, I'm do. i not a prophetic dreamer. I have to take this hormone at night because I need to. And it makes me sleep really deeply. I don't dream. This was a very rare dream. And the sea of people, as far as I could see, began falling on their faces. Falling on their faces and crying out with the most honest, raw, help us, God. And I woke up crying, literally crying. The point of the dream to me was this. Who do you choose to identify with the least of these and who are the least of these and what is stopping you are you afraid of their mess are you afraid that somehow truth won't prevail so you gotta so hold the line of what's true and what's right that you can't What are the fears? The, literally, the only thing that cannot exist in the face of fear is love. And love cannot exist where fear is. Fear cannot exist where love is. When we get rid of that fear, because we know how loved and forgiven we are by this kind and compassionate father that waits at the end of the road not to tell us how wrong we are. But just waits with hopeful anticipation and excitement. This is the love we get to be conduits of. Disclaimer. I'm not saying if your job literally is in a position as a police officer or a judge. You know, if you're in a position where your job is to walk out the justice of God, you walk out the justice of God. Most of us are not in that position. Most of us are onlookers, and we are the church. We are the bride. And who will we give voice to? Who will we help reconcile to the Father? We can't scare them away by 
externally processing out loud if they're right or wrong. We got to figure out, we know what truth is and the nuances can be worked out just because we have access to all the details doesn't mean we're supposed to get involved in all the details. You need to come up here and clean up after me. (laughs) Because I don't know if I'm saying anything that sounds like it's not what I'm saying and you know my heart. No, you're doing it right. (laughs) You want to finish it up? No, you're saying it right. I don't need to add to it. It said so right. And um, I think you should pray over everyone um, with what God has on you at this time. The Lord's doing something deep in our hearts. And as you can see, it's so important. There's this macro vision I was laying out last night. We've got to carry his presence and power and to every area of society. But we've got to get this core truth applied to our own hearts and spirits where we know who he is we know what he's about we carry his kindness and goodness and when we get this at a personal level it really is going to accelerate what we have to do at the tops of the mountains Jesus himself allowed his reputation to be of no regard He did not care that he appeared to the religious, that he was condoning the sin of those who he chose to hang out with. And why would they want to hang out with him if he was there just telling them how wrong they were? The younger generation, our sons and daughters, are falling away, many of them, because they can't quite make this transition between what they've been taught and what to do with the love and the compassion that they feel in their souls. And I don't pretend to have a neat and tidy answer, But God has put it in our sons and daughters and they will transition into being a generation who know how to walk in truth and in love. The kind of love that when someone who is very broken and very lost and very deceived and maybe even partnered in a very enmeshed way with evil itself that they will be able to be in the presence of the sons and daughters of God and feel zero shame. That's the love that we just expose our own hearts to right now. Zero shame, zero condemnation, zero performance. Let the walls fall. Immerse us in this, this love. Unconditional, without agenda. They will ask us, how must I be saved? We won't have to ask them, would you like to know where you're going when you die? They will beg us to know. 
So we surrender again, God. We surrender collectively as your sons and daughters, as your bride. And we say we want to be known more for what we are for than what we're against. We want to be known for this love that we can hardly understand ourselves. So we just, as an act of our will and an act of our faith, we expose every corner of our heart, every cell of our body to the flow, the unending flow, the forceful, supernatural flow of your love. Let it heal us in every sense. Let it steady us in every sense. Let it reorient us to your gaze. Let it reorient us to our true north. Let everything else just fall away in the light of this love of you. Thank you, Father. God, I ask that what you're pouring out right now just wouldn't stop. Let it just continue throughout the days that we're together in these meetings and our worship. We want it. We hunger for it. We crave it. We can't get enough. We want enough to overflow so that as we leave and we go into our our personal places of passion and influence, that it would literally fall off of us. That the only option would always be love. Thank you, Holy Spirit, in your wisdom and in your voice. You show us in any given moment what love can look like and sound like. And we say that it's simple, but it's, it's deep, it's profound. And we want to learn how to walk in it, partnered with you. In Jesus' name, amen.